Welcome to The Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. Today we are meeting Dr. Jose Alvarado, who is a professor of biophysics at the University of Texas at Austin. Jose grew up in Miami and was a graphic designer for some time after high school and wanted to go to art school. But he ended up doing his undergrad in mechanical engineering in Miami, and then he got a master's in biophysics and a minor in classical Sanskrit from the University of Leipzig in Germany. He then got a PhD in biophysics from the Freie University and Amolf in Amsterdam, Netherlands, followed by a postdoc in mechanical engineering at MIT. We begin this conversation with the story of his academic path and his trajectory into biophysics. Then we ask the question, what is life? We discuss British evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins' meme definition of life, according to which ideas, music, and jokes are living. I mentioned that in non-dual views, the divide between life and matter is unreal. One school decides that consciousness is therefore an illusion, while the other school says that matter is a dream. Jose asks me, is our planet alive? Which leads to the question, at what physical scale does consciousness exist? I then ask him about my previous guest Pedro's view that causal chains of reductionism are failing at explaining life and causal cycles are a better theory. I ask Jose the same question that I discussed with Pedro. Are our scientific modes of explanation, specifically Western linear reductionism versus Eastern cyclic understanding, informed and biased by our traditional cultural and religious cosmologies? Jose then explains why he believes that the study of nonlinear dynamics, my favorite part of physics during my master's, will make a serious comeback. So um, let's start a little bit with a kind of introduction, like, you know, who you are and a little bit of your background and life trajectory, however much you're um, willing to share, but your like, you know, childhood upbringing, how did you become interested in science, biophysics, how did you end up um, where you are today, just to get a kind of understanding of who we are talking with. All right. Um, when I uh, graduated high school, I had no idea what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my friends, of course, you know, uh, applied to college and got into colleges and, you know, I thought the system was stupid and so mm -hmm. I wasn't going to do that. I wanted to do something else. Uh, and, um, and then high school graduation rolled around and all of my friends were saying, I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm going there. And I realized I had no clue what I was going to do. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, I got decent grades in school uh, and, uh, you know, I did well enough. I just, uh, you know, never really uh, cared too much about, you know, this whole rat race, uh, you know, that they kind of put you through in the education system here. Uh, so I graduated high school, but then a couple of days later, I ended up getting a job at a company I was sort of interning for um, uh, as a graphic designer. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so I was working as a graphic designer. Um, I made a really terrible looking <laughs> newspaper advertisements, but they paid me for it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, uh, that was uh, great fun for a while. Um, and uh, 
Um, and then, of course, you know, I got my act together and started applying to college. And uh, eventually, so I grew up in Miami, uh, and I ended up getting accepted to University of Miami. Mm. Uh, you know, small, private, expensive school. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, before applying to University of Miami, though, um, I actually wanted to go to art school. Because mm. um, I thought, hey, you know, I'm doing graphic design. I really liked photography in high school. I liked digital arts. Uh, you know, I did... Um, uh, you know, an AP exam and an IB exam uh, in studio art. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I got good grades on those uh, and I really enjoyed it and I thought uh, how fun it would be to continue along this trajectory. So I was seriously considering going to art school and it was my own mom who said, uh, well, you're also good at math and science um, and uh, she herself is an artist, got a, a bachelor's in fine art uh, and she, uh, she knew firsthand what the art world was like and she's like, you know, you can always do art as a hobby, but, you know, try doing, you know, uh, something related to math and science. Um, uh, uh, you, you may uh, do well there. Uh, so, so I, so I uh, eventually declared a, a mechanical engineering major because I thought, hey, you know, what better place to, like, you know, integrate art and science than with mechanical mm -hmm. engineering and design and so on. Um, uh, but then I had to, uh, when I was at University of Miami, I had to start building stuff, uh, and I was no good at that. Uh, and I enjoyed more like my physics classes and all like all the calculations. Uh, and so um, I started becoming more interested in um, the concepts behind you know all of the engineering. And so uh, I, I ended up uh, leaving the University of Miami after two semesters uh, and started my physics studies in Germany. Hmm. Um, I, I was also so you soon left University of Miami. Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, after two semesters, I decided not to continue. Um, part of it was financial. It was starting to get expensive. Um, and uh, Germany was free. Uh, I, have, uh, uh, I have German citizenship uh, through my mom, uh, who is half German. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I uh, decided to take advantage of that uh, and go to Germany for college. Now, to be clear, anyone can go to Germany for university. Uh, it's free there for pretty much everyone. Uh, and... Um, uh, and they even have a, they even have a, a studied uh, physics and English there. Mm. Um, so, uh, so that was actually a really a mind opening experience for me, having grown up in a place like Miami, uh, in a country like the United States, to leave it and go somewhere else. Uh, that was uh, uh, that was uh, perhaps one of the most significant things I've done in my life. Yeah. Um, Where in Germany were you? Uh, in a city called Leipzig. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was in Hamburg for a couple of months hey. as an exchange student during my undergrad. Uh -huh. Whoa, yeah. cool. Yeah. Uh, what was your experience like in Hamburg? Uh, now it's kind of faded into the fog of my you know, memory. But I think I remember that I like, enjoyed it a lot. That was also the first time that I had left India. Mm. And it's an even bigger like cultural contrast than going from US to Germany. So it was definitely a very like eye-opening experience. And I was there by myself and I went like full throttle adventure. I like bought URL passes. Yeah. I maxed out, you know, uh, and, and I like backpacked across Europe on a shoestring budget. Um, I, I fell asleep on sidewalks. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I spent the night on the sidewalk outside the Rome station because oh, that was wow. so cheap. I would not even book like... Uh, hostels uh, yeah but yeah I, I traveled around Germany also quite a bit I really liked Hamburg also yeah it was a good experience I was there with the 
Deutscher Akademischer Austauschdienst, yep. which is the German Academic Exchange Service. Uh-huh. And I was kind of like involved with the DAAD for a couple of years after that. Hey, and cool. they were pretty nice folks. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really cool. Um, uh, I, you're, you're bringing back memories of a friend of mine and I. So uh, when I moved to Germany, my mom also decided to leave the United States and she moved to Switzerland and then eventually Italy uh, at the time. Uh, we went to go visit my mom, but there was confusion about the dates. And so my friend and I, uh, uh, we arrived in Florence where she was living, uh, but she wasn't there. Oh. <laughs> so we roamed the streets and also slept on sidewalk. Oh my God. For a night. And then when she realized, uh, you know, we were there, <laughs> she rushed back uh, and, uh, and uh, opened the door for us. Oh, yeah. I see. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so, so yeah, uh, living in Europe uh, for me was just uh, an amazing experience, um, and, uh, uh, and that's, uh, that's where I started my uh, deep dive into physics uh, and, um, and into myself, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, that was uh, pretty much where I came from. Yeah, yeah. And then how did you end up like, getting into biophysics and eventually you know, sort of the position that you hold today? So... I knew in high school and I knew when I was doing mechanical engineering that I wanted to have nothing to do with biology. Um, <laughs> um, uh, in high school, we had to dissect animals, uh, yeah. and uh, I, I, did, I didn't agree with that. Um, and, um, I, we had to memorize a lot of stuff, and my memory's no good. Um, yeah. one, of, one of the things I really enjoyed about physics those are Those are my two main points against <laughs> biology, too. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, uh, in physics, you don't have to remember anything. You yeah, know, yeah. Like one yeah. equation, you just yeah, derive everything. Yeah, my memory was trash when I was in school. Everything that required memorization has left an imprint of trauma in me. Yeah. Like history, you know, chemistry, biology, two parts of biology you can conceptualize, other parts you cannot. And the two subjects that I could get away with without memorizing were physics and math. Yeah. I was like, yeah, this is it. This yep. is not a cognitive burden. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, of course, there, there are people that, you know, suffer with math anxiety and so on. So, of yeah. course, uh, different, mm-hmm. you know, different brains, different ways of thinking for different people. And, yeah, I just resonated most with physics and math as well. Yeah. Um, but then uh, when I was, uh, so I was starting to become interested in, uh, uh, in mathematical physics. Uh, and uh, I was considering working with a professor who, uh, who, whose research is uh, on one of the many alternatives to string theory. Um, is if I remember right, was like a non-commutative algebra uh, underlying quantum mechanics or something like that, and uh, I was really interested in that kind of stuff. Um, and I worked with uh, with him for for a while, uh, not on research, but on like a class project of you know uh, following quantum mechanics. Uh, it was on group theory, and I have this like group theory thing on my uh, website. It's a document that I uh, ended up writing. Um, I was really interested in this kind of stuff, but then I attended a biophysics class, um, and. That class uh, really, uh, really surprised me at how much I enjoyed um, because uh, I could approach biology from a perspective of uh, somebody who resonates with math and physics as opposed to somebody who resonates with, you know, memorization and, you know, uh, keeping in mind all of the detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, you know, it was great to see these sort of overarching principles expressed in math applied to biology. And then when I, when I asked to do a research project, uh, I fell in love with it, even though like it was such a minor project. Um, uh, it was just a lot of fun. Uh, uh, in the end, I, uh, after like two years of research work, I ended up measuring a force of 10 piconewtons plus or minus 10 piconewtons. Oh. <laughs> That's essentially my master's thesis. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, but it was really great. Uh, I, I enjoyed being able to work with 
biological samples, but from a physicist's perspective. Yeah. Um, and that sort of kicked up, kicked off a whole chain of them suddenly becoming more interested in biology. Um, yeah. uh, and you know, I, I, my memory is still not uh, all that great, but uh, I now have a better appreciation for the uh, complexity and details needed to better understand biology. I think a lot of physicists, uh, mathematicians, maybe uh, when they look at biology, they try to you know, just sort of abstract away details and. Uh, Oftentimes, when working with actual biology, you do need to be aware of those details, but you can't lose the you know, mm -hmm. zoomed-out view either. So it kind of requires both approaches. Yeah. So in your talk a couple of days back, um, in my mind, I noticed like sort of two rough things that you were talking about, or two rough domains. Mm -hmm. One was this kind of more explicit, specific like mechanical properties of biological systems. And the other was more, a little bit more like grand philosophical questions about mm -hmm. what is life, et cetera, things yes. like that. Um, so I, wanna, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the second domain. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, what, let's just start with what is life and can we create life? Mm -hmm. What is life? Um, I think if you ask different people, you'll get different answers. Yeah. Um, and I'm aware of different answers, right? Uh, you can ask some biologists and they'll probably tell you like, you know, some sort of thing that uh, is capable of self-reproducing yeah. uh, and uh, is capable of, you know, autonomous behavior and so on. Uh, I teach a thermodynamics and statistical mechanics class. Uh, you can maybe argue that the thermodynamic definition of life is, uh, you know, just some sort of physical system that continuously consumes uh, free energy uh, in order to maintain a, uh, you know, a relatively stable non-equilibrium state. Um, uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, you can start getting into, you know, the realm of, uh, you know, the religions we have in this, uh, uh, in this world right now. Uh, and uh, uh, what is life uh, can be uh, answered in a lot of different ways uh, from different religions. Um, uh, and uh, um, you could argue that life is somehow something sort of, you know, sacred or, you know, something mm -hmm. divine, uh, mm -hmm. uh, even created. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, different folks will give you these different perspectives on life. Uh, and then of course, um, my definition of life is actually, I don't know. Um, mm. uh, I, you know, I look at it from these different perspectives um, and uh, I, you know, I couldn't begin to give you uh, uh, the best description or the best definition of life. Yeah. Um, and then that goes into like, can we create life? Um, I also don't know. You know, some people seem to be very much insistent that yes, we will be able to create life one day. Um, my old uh, PhD advisor is one of those people because uh, she's part of a group in the Netherlands uh, called BASIC, uh, B-A-S-Y-C. Uh, they're a group funded by the Dutch uh, funding, uh, you know, scientific funding organization, and uh, their goal is to uh, essentially, you know, create an artificial cell. Um, and of course, um, there's, uh, you know, there's also been researchers here in the United States with similar aims. Um, uh, there's this, uh, you know, uh, funding mechanism from the Sloan Foundation called Matter to Life, uh, which uh, mm. I'm also trying to apply to. Uh, and, uh, you know, their goal uh, seems, broadly speaking, also to create synthetic life. Uh, and then, of course, there are people who believe that life is so fundamental and so divine uh, that mm. it's impossible for humans to be able to create. Um, yeah. uh, and so... Uh, so where we are today in 2022, uh, nobody knows the answer to this question, if you ask me. Um, mm. 
Uh, and so different people have different beliefs about uh, the answer to that question. Yeah. Um, when I was in undergrad, I think I read The Selfish Gene by mm -hmm. Richard Dawkins. And there I encountered an interesting idea. And he said, if you look in the textbooks, there's like this whole laundry list in biology textbooks about what is life. It grows, it reproduces, it eats, blah, blah, blah etc. So it's not an elegant definition. Furthermore, often, sometimes this definition fails. You see mm -hmm. systems which are not living that satisfy some of those criteria or mm -hmm. whatever. And then there are systems that are living that do not satisfy some of them. And then there were like weird systems like viruses mm -hmm. that, you know, really challenge like, oh, what, what is the boundary between life and death? Uh, or not death, but non-living. And so I don't know if he was the first person to do this, but I think he became famous as the first person to suggest an alternate definition, which was um, a living thing is something that, you know, replicates copies of itself, like not the exact same copy, but slightly mutated copies. And then they fight um, to survive and then they get selected. Mm -hmm. um, and so anything that satisfies that is life. Anything that does not satisfy that is not life. Mm -hmm. So he said, so now um, that means, okay, viruses are living. But he also said that that means a whole new class of things that we did not consider as being life uh, would uh, be considered life. Like, for example, ideas. I give you an idea mm -hmm. in your head or a lot of people mm -hmm. and they basically create little mutated copies in different people's minds and they compete with each other like ideologies mm -hmm. or, or, or songs or whatever and then the best ones get chosen and so he said that uh, I'm going to call these just as the biological unit of selection is the genes uh, I'm going to call this cultural unit of selection the meme mm -hmm. and just as we have a study of genes called genetics we can have memetics and I think that's the first time that the word meme was coined. Mm -hmm. And then the word meme itself kind of became a meme, like everyone started talking. Basically viral little bits of pictures or images or mm -hmm. text that started spreading online. But I was like, that's kind of interesting to think of ideas in the head as something like a virus or something that's living, mm -hmm. something that kind of is autonomous and spreads on its own. And we are just a substrate on which... Uh, this is happening. And you can plot all that stuff mathematically nowadays. I mean, uh, all you need is a uh, you know, basic understanding of graph theory and uh, an analysis of either you know, scientific publications or mm -hmm. uh, you know, posts on uh, you know, social media. Um, uh, there's even, so a friend of mine, um, a, a physics professor now, uh, did a study uh, analyzing Supreme Court justice decisions over decades. Yeah. Um, and uh, used uh, statistical physics uh, mechanics uh, methods to uh, analyze uh, which justices were influencing whom. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, you can trace these sorts of, uh, you know, flows of uh, ideas and influence uh, and uh, yeah. competition uh, uh, in a lot of different realms. Yeah. Uh, so I guess we cannot at the moment arrive at an objective definition of what life is, but to what extent do you resonate with that definition? Oh, with, uh, with Dawkins' yeah. uh, definition? Um, well, let me, th let me think about that. Um, so I see that, uh, I, I see a parallel between this notion of like, you know, uh, ideas and memes uh, being similar to uh, that of viruses. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and I think it's interesting to, uh, to add on to the definition of not just uh, 
procreation, but also of competition for survival. Yeah. Um, uh, and indeed, uh, when you look at the natural world, uh, it is rife with competition. Uh, it is rife uh, with violence. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an undeniable fact uh, of, our, uh, of our planet. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so in that sense, uh, in that sense, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, in that sense, uh, I do resonate uh, with this definition, and I accept it as one of the many possible ways of describing life. Yeah. Um, this is going to be a little bit, maybe, a little bit out there, mm-hmm. but there are some, like I guess, religious or spiritual traditions whose perspective is that the the apparent divide between matter and spirit or like you know non-living and living is an illusion like there is one of these is in the in the kind of hindu universe of ideas one of those is called the advaita vedanta or the Mm -hmm. non-dualistic philosophy which says that the universe seems to be divided into opposites and one of those divisions is between the uh, the seer and the scene or mm-hmm. the subject and the object are like, you know, the life and, you know, just the objects. And, but this is an illusion, mm-hmm. um, that the separation is an illusion. And I think different schools have, um, kind of collapsed onto different sides of this. For example, Western scientific materialism has had this kind of uh, what I might call like sort of a dogma that everything is material. And in fact, the opposite is an illusion. Like mm-hmm. consciousness is an illusion or mm-hmm. some kind of an epiphenomenon or whatever. That's not really real. It's just material. Whereas there are other traditions that like other branches of Hinduism, for example, regard all of this as some kind of a magic dream, mm-hmm. including matter. Matter has no independent objective existence on its own. Mm-hmm. It's just part of a dream. It just follows some patterns um, that are somewhat regular and whatever. So we think that they have a, an objective existence, but there's no reason to think that they have. So they are on two completely opposite camps. One says, Yes, there is no division. It's all material. The other says, yes, there's no division. It's all spirit. And um, and I guess non-duality says that there's just no division. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't say it's all. If, if there's no division, there's no need to call it one or the other. Uh, so according to these kind of uh, ways of thought, there is no need to even struggle to find the boundary line between life and non-life because it's kind of an illusion. Mm. What do you what do you think about that? So so indeed, uh, there's a whole realm of uh, of models of uh, explanations of uh, this uh, either existence or lack of existence between life and inert matter. Mm. Um, uh, I, I was looking through your uh, old episodes uh, and uh, and I noticed uh, you uh, you talked. Uh, I didn't listen to any of the episodes, but I saw the descriptions and I, mm. and I noticed you. Uh, uh, you were describing uh, about uh, experiences of non-duality that you've had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, in the context of this question, I want to ask you the following question. Uh, I want to know your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, is our planet alive or not? Yeah. So um, I feel like, okay, so the first thing is we as human beings, we have a certain, okay, let's just start with, okay, 
we have a certain consciousness. Now you can, people can come and debate that, but I'm just talking about the subjective experience of I'm here. And I'm here at a certain scale. Like I say, this is my body, meaning that um, I exist at this scale of a couple of meters, and that's, that's what I experience. Um, but if you just look at the material processes that are happening inside my body, and if you didn't know anything about the consciousness stuff, you could even say, oh, there could technically, there is technically some kind of autonomous complex behavior that's going on at the sub-human body level. There are like little living things in there and whatever. And so if someone from the outside didn't know about consciousness, I feel like they might think that consciousness could exist at all of these different levels. Mm -hmm. And what we are experiencing is just the body or the, the meter level consciousness within this body. And so, you know, if there is some element of consciousness in a tree, there could be some sub-level of that consciousness in an individual leaf mm -hmm. um, because it kind of tries to fend for itself also. Um, and so if you scale that up from the body to um, something like the planet, we are like the little moving particles in the planet, just like the cells and whatever the bacteria are inside the body. So who is to say that there isn't like some kind of a planet level consciousness? Now it might be qualitatively very different from human consciousness, but just looking at the phenomenology that's happening, it's kind of like a moving, warping, churning, living thing that recycles its contents and it, you know, it creates new things. So I think this idea has been talked about before that the planet is some kind of like a living thing. But the planet doesn't uh, split in half and create uh, you yeah. know, daughter planets. Uh, the planet doesn't uh, create new planets that fight amongst each other. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can argue that the yeah. planet is just some sort of substrate, uh, you know, just some sort of separate object yeah. uh, that uh, like a like a Petri dish, uh, you yeah. know, with the right nutrients that allows then these other things yeah. separate from it called life to mm -hmm. exist. Um, and so uh, I've never experienced non-duality myself. I'm aware of the concept uh, mm -hmm. of it, uh, but um, uh, and I try to find different avenues to try to see if I can experience it. Um, but uh, but I think uh, one of those ways for me is to uh, indeed regard uh, this planet uh, as you described it uh, so nicely uh, in that it is alive in some sense, or at least we'll reduce that and say that there's some sort of broader consciousness that. Uh, Hard, it's hard for us to, uh, you know, experience or conceptualize because it's at much mm -hmm. larger scales. Um, but the moment we start separating ourselves from the planet and look at it as just like, you know, some rock, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, that supports us, um, then the planet is not alive anymore. Uh, it's yeah. just this inert thing. Uh, but if you include everything together and you stop separating, mm -hmm. suddenly the whole thing is alive. And, uh, you know... Uh, um, you can argue uh, that the planet doesn't need us to be alive. Uh, you know, maybe uh, uh, you know, maybe the planet is just fine without us. Mm -hmm. um, but we definitely need the planet. Yeah. So yeah. that also creates a sort of imbalance and dependency, uh, that uh, an asymmetry that um, uh, you wouldn't expect out of uh, a non-dual perspective as well. So yeah, yeah. Um, so I kind of briefly mentioned this in your recent talk. But I recently interviewed another biophysics uh, PhD student, mm -hmm. and he seemed to be approaching the understanding of life. So he also works on questions like, you know, what is life and, you know, the origin of life and things like that. And he seemed to me to approach it from like a very kind of radical point of view. Mm -hmm. 
And he was saying, oh, reductionism has been a complete failure mm. in trying to explain life and its complexity. And reductionism views um, the whole chain of explanation as some kind of linear thing, A to B to C to D, etc. And he was saying that life is not that. It's not like that. It's more like loops. So we have to understand mm. this. And there is some kind of a theory. He, t he told me about this theory. Well, I have to go back and listen to it. But apparently there, there has been some kind of a theorization of these kind of like loops and loops inside bigger loops, mm -hmm, etc. Mm -hmm. So you have to, instead of conceptualizing life as resulting from some linear arrow of causality, you have to see them as like some kind of recurrent loops. Mm -hmm. And the recurrent loops um, basically are part of like larger recurrent loops. Um, like, for example, you're saying the fact that it kind of like propagates and preserves itself it's kind of a loop and then within that it, it is within a bigger loop where it creates copies of itself and then you know there's like this birth death cycle mm -hmm. etc um and he was saying that's a better theoretical framework from which to uh, approach the conceptualization of life mm -hmm. and i was kind of surprised because i thought hey hasn't reductionism worked because like technically the understanding that everyone carries at least is that we have been able to kind of explain what life is because we know what the what the atoms do and we know what the molecules do on the basis of that and we know i was just reading steven weinberg's uh dreams of a final theory mm -hmm. and he was talking about the arrows of explanation um it was saying even if you cannot exactly work out what the molecule will do based on the atoms because the calculations are too complex you still at least know in principle their behavior would be explained by what the properties of the atoms are and there is no extra magic sauce. Uh, you, you might not be able to compute it fully. Um, so, so you've got the atoms to the molecules to the biochemistry and then from the biochemistry you have this whole like the body that's doing this stuff and okay, that's life. But okay, it is true that if you just know the properties of the atoms and the molecules, you might not be able to compute what the whole organism is doing but is that a failure of reductionism is just that the computations are too complex so in what way has reductionism really failed um i wouldn't say that reductionism hasn't failed it's just that we're not like we don't have a complete uh description yet uh and mm. whether we'll ever reach a complete description is a question about uh you know the future and infinity and so on um but of course in in 2022 uh reductionism hasn't been able to connect this chasm between biochemistry uh, and the behavior of a cell. Um, and uh, just as I was arguing in my talk earlier, there's this uh, sort of intermediate stage of like, a, you know, a regulatory networks and system biology, uh, that where loops are absolutely everywhere. Um, uh, you know, you can talk about like, you know, the cycle of like, you know, birth and death and life and so on, but uh, you don't even need to go that far. All you need to do is just look at you know, a group of like, you know, 10, 20 proteins that interact with each other uh, in loop-like fashions and with feedback loops and feed-forward loops. Mm -hmm. uh, and suddenly you can get extremely complicated behavior that is uh, practically impossible to describe mathematically. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, sure, you can get a computer to crunch the numbers, then you have this, uh, you know, uh, sometimes uh, extraordinarily large space of possible behaviors that's uh, mm -hmm. really difficult to get your hand on because uh, it's just uh, this, the system together can be way too complicated. Yeah. Um, and so try to do this with the, I don't know how many, but like, you know, thousands or maybe tens of thousands of uh, different kinds of proteins, maybe even more, I don't know, uh, proteins inside of a cell. 
uh, performing all sorts of different uh, interlinked functions. Mm -hmm. um, and suddenly you just have this uh, incredibly uh, dense, uh, perhaps uh, you know, approaching infinitely connected kind of uh, system that uh, that reductionism may or may not ever be able to fully break down. Yeah. Um, now, whether or not reductionism will ever get there, I don't know. Um, I, like I mentioned in my talk, um, there are systems biologists out there that believe that reductionism will never get there. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then of course, you know, me coming from a physics perspective where we're used to reductionism all over the place. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I find it a, a very interesting, uh, place in our physics history where we're presented with such a major natural phenomenon that uh, is so currently resistant to our usual reductionist approach. Mm. And so I wonder uh, what else, uh, like what is necessary, uh, what kind of physics uh, will be necessary in the future to try to address this uh, complexity issue? Yeah. So, so my thought, I guess, just to try to articulate it a little bit better, is if the problem in the prediction and understanding is that it just starts becoming so complex because there's so many interlocking parts and you can't exactly predict it. I understand that, but if reductionism doesn't work, like what else will? If, if it is a result of just, just exploding complexity, how is any other framework going to be able to grasp all of that? Oh, well... Uh, you can do what biologists have been doing for a very long time. Uh, mm -hmm. and you can maybe call it uh, very naively the black box approach, where mm -hmm. here you have this thing, uh, you know, you, uh, you poke it in some way, you see a response. Uh, you don't know, there's a lot of things going on in between, but you know what you've done, you know what you've been able to observe. Uh, and then, of course, uh, and of course, you just try to dissect further and further into this black box uh, and try to, you know, disturb it in different ways and try to look for different phenotypes. Um, uh, to try to uh, and try to you know come up with you know hypothesized mechanisms for why this particular perturbation led to this particular phenotype, uh, and um, and then now uh, with systems biology, uh, uh, you know folks are just acquiring mass amounts of data. Uh, you know, uh, it's becoming uh, ever easier to obtain data. You can just uh, program a robot to do a lot of pipetting for you. You can you know mm. add a whole bunch of chemicals. You can do all sorts of genetic modifications. Um, uh, and there's a whole bunch of tools that I'm not a, I'm not aware of because I'm not a systems biologist. But um, the the approach is that you know with a lot of uh, you know black box approach and with a lot of data um, uh, at this you know large zoomed out level um, uh, that that is uh, because you're working with life um, that a lot of biologists feel you're a lot closer to understanding life than if you were. Uh, far removed from life uh, in a system, for example, the uh, systems I study in my lab, none of them are alive. They're, mm. you know, they mimic things that are uh, alive uh, and, uh, you know, I'm restricted to mechanics of, uh, you know, uh, uh, instances of mechanics and biology. Um, but uh, I'm so reductionistic that I'm not uh, working with things that are alive. And so, uh, mm. you know, I'm, I, I wouldn't be taken seriously as a biologist um, instead I'm a physicist working mm. with or being inspired by biology and they're just two uh, if you ask me very complementary and necessary approaches uh, whether they'll converge or not in the future is uh, you know something that people mm -hmm. can debate um, uh, I just see it as uh, here we have this thing called life uh, it's so um, complex and intricate and uh, difficult to uh, fully describe here you just have some people standing on one side of life, approaching it from this one perspective, and here you have me approaching it from another perspective. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so, you know, this is also going to be sounding kind of hokey, but when I was talking to this um, other uh, biologist about the linear thinking versus like the mm -hmm. loop kind of thinking, one of the things that came to my mind was that this linear reductionist um, chain of um, causation idea actually kind of came from the West, like mm -hmm. scientific materialism, Western scientific reductionism. If you look at, let's say I'm from India, if you look at the sort of ancient knowledge systems of the East, uh, to the West, it seems kind of like magical stuff. And it was definitely not as reductionist. And I was wondering how much of this is a result of the historical streams of thinking. And uh, the linear thing, what is also interesting is that the Western conceptualization of the story of the whole universe is also more linear. That there was a Big Bang and the universe is moving forward. There is just like this arrow of time. It's not going to go back ever and it's going to end in some particular final state. And if you look at the religions, the Western religions, it's also the story of your life is also linear. It does not repeat itself. You came from somewhere, you're going to live this life. And then there's going to be some permanent final state, either hell or heaven or something like that. That's right. And if you look at the analogous ideas in the East, the story of the universe in India, for example, in the, in the Hindu like um, religious cosmology is not linear. It's a loop. Mm -hmm. So because the universe is seen as like an in-breath and an out-breath, it comes from the vacuum and just just bursts into this multitude. And then the in-breath goes in or like whatever, you know, the, the, the universe ends and it goes back to like some kind of a singularity and then it comes again. And it just does this loop like over and over again. And the story of individual lives is also like there's this rebirth idea death is not the final end you don't go to heaven maybe you go to some other realm but you keep regenerating forever and ever unless you find an exit strategy which is nirvana but that's like this other thing i don't really know very well about so it's like hey how many of these scientific ideas map onto other cultural or religious ideas and could it be that the ways in which we are trying to quote-unquote, objectively approach a scientific question is also informed by the cultural thinking of the societal bodies that we have been embedded in for centuries. Oh, for sure. I mean, um, uh, you know, we're, we're products of, uh, uh, you know, we, we stand on the shoulder of giants. We're products mm -hmm. of our own cultures. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, that'll uh, give us the initial conditions uh, uh, of our uh, trajectory into thinking space. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, I would roughly agree, indeed, that uh, that a lot of Western thinking uh, tends to be quite linear, um, uh, and then uh, and I've encountered uh, indeed uh, more cyclical kinds of uh, thinking uh, in uh, my understanding of uh, of Eastern religions. Um, it's not a, like like it starts to break down a little bit because um, uh, it, maybe it's not so much in physics because in physics I would say uh, you know things are very linear. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, but if you ask any engineer uh, that works with control systems, uh, they can tell you everything about yeah. feedback loops. Uh, and feedback loops, if you ask me, are like the quantum of complexity in a biological system. Um, they, uh, you know, information of the current state 
makes makes the rounds through the system and then eventually comes back to that state and it steers it towards certain specified trajectories in this yeah. gigantic multi-dimensional phase space uh you know uh, yeah. in complete contrast to an equilibrium system that just kind of explores everything randomly um, so feedback uh, and this loop-like thinking uh, is common in biology. Engineers know all about it. Physicists know far less about it. Like I mentioned in the talk, mm -hmm. uh, control mm -hmm. theory is not part of standard physics curriculum. And I think it, uh, anyone interested in biophysics should be taking control theory. Um, so, uh, so loops for sure uh, play a central role uh, there. Um, and, um, and I think, uh, I, I also think that um, uh, thinking in terms of loops, uh, helps uh, in this aspect. Um, so there's some, a couple of things I wanted to say. Um, so uh, what your friend was talking about where we need to think in terms of loops rather than lines, I still don't see a breaking of causality. Mm -hmm. um, feedback loops are still causal. Uh, there mm -hmm. is something called a causal control. Uh, it is possible mm -hmm. to kind of control a system if you know where it ex where you expect it to be in the future. Uh, and anyone who works with um, confocal microscopes, uh, atomic force microscopes, scanning tunneling microscopes are familiar with this because um, you know that uh, you're scanning your detector, you know, across a grid, and you know, like at a certain time in the future, where it's going to be, and so you can kind of uh, use that information to to help steer the system to the state that you want it to be. So in the sense, uh, in feedback control, there's such a thing as a causal control, but that's a pretty special case. As far as I understand in biology, all feedback uh, is still causal. Um, you know, it's not that information from the future is coming into the past uh, and mm -hmm. influencing the system. At least that's our current understanding. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that sense, uh, things are still linear in time. And rather than thinking in terms of like, circles in time you could think of maybe like a like a corkscrew or a spiral in time uh, yeah. where the loop is still advancing linearly in time that's the kind of picture that combines both the circular thinking as well as the linear thinking yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um uh coming back to the you said something about uh, a life from matter grant mm -hmm. that you're working on yes what is that whole thing about like what what does it entail? Like, is it a particular line of research and some particular line of thinking that you're, you've also been thinking along? Interestingly, this program uh, explicitly states, and this is why uh, I'm applying to this program, is that they fund both um, systems level as well as reductionist uh, approaches to understanding uh, life. Mm. And uh, with the goal of building synthetic life, uh, or at least or at least understanding the principles of how life arose from matter, mm -hmm. um, that starts to become a philosophical question. Some people believe in self-organization, right? That like uh, you know, uh, life spontaneously emerged, you know, from uh, from matter. Uh, and of course, other people believe that life was uh, carefully designed uh, from uh, from matter, uh, uh, like a sculptor. Uh, and uh, and that's something that I. That's where I raise my hand and say I don't know because uh, I wasn't there when life emerged. Mm -hmm. I don't know what happened, uh, and there are all these competing ideas, uh, and I don't have any uh, way of measuring or uh, you know conceptualizing what happened. Mm. Uh, so, um, uh, so the so the program's aims are uh, you know I think uh, uh, you know it, it didn't seem to me that like they really cared so deeply about this you know, philosophical question, uh, but rather just sort of trying to understand these principles of how life can emerge from matter. Um, and, uh, and, and then 
allowing people that work with living systems and people that work in a reductionistic fashion uh, to uh, come up with complementary approaches to approach to answer this question. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned this thing about how control theory is important in understanding. The other thing that you said was that you believe that nonlinear dynamics is going to probably have a resurgence. Oh, definitely. So let me tell you a little story that happened to me. I got my master's in nonlinear dynamics hey. in India, and I asked my master's thesis advisor, who I recently had on my podcast as well, but he mostly talked about scientific communication to the public. But he was a really good professor in my undergrad in India, and he kind of got me interested in nonlinear dynamics. I was like, yeah, I really like this stuff. I want to do a PhD on it. And he said, oh, yeah, here's a couple of places in the U.S. that you could apply. UT Austin has a center for nonlinear dynamics, and he kind of recommended that. So I got into a couple of places, including UT, and he said, you should go to UT. That's how I ended up here. Uh -huh. And in the beginning, I was just taking classes. I had not spoken to any particular professor here. So I was just kind of like, you know, trying to figure out what group I should join. And uh, Dr. Sweeney, who I also recently interviewed for my podcast, okay. by the way, he uh, was about to retire. And he said, I'm not taking grad students anymore. Mm -hmm. And I remember I went into Dr. Keto's office, who's our um, academic advisor. And he asked me, so what like research plans do you have? I said, I want to do nonlinear dynamics. He said, oh, that's a bummer. Uh, yeah, it's called the Center for Nonlinear Dynamics, but nonlinear dynamics has really, it used to be um, what people were working on, like, you know, um, like a decade back or whatever, five years back. But all the nonlinear dynamics research has effectively ended. People have kind of packed up, and what's going on is more like biophysics. And I remember I was sitting in his office and it felt like the, the, the sky was like crashing down on mm. my head. I was like, oh my God, Neil, how could you be so stupid <sighs> that you didn't even like look up what people are. And I thought, what am I going to do now? I, do I need to like pack my bags and go back to India? And uh, so, yeah, but eventually I started working on like computational neuroscience and stuff. I was like, oh, there's like plenty of stuff to be working on. Um, but I do remember that moment of like, oh yeah, nonlinear dynamics is gone, it's ended. But you think it's gonna be back. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I definitely see uh, within the context of describing, uh, so you, uh, people describe uh, any like nonlinear anything to be sort of like non-zebra zoology, right? Like yeah. linear systems are such a narrow, uh, minuscule, fraction of all possible systems out there. Mm -hmm. um, it's a simple description. You can handle it analytically. Works great for undergrad classes. Um, but then the moment you start getting some nonlinear anything becomes more challenging uh, and that tends to be more like grad level stuff, research level stuff. Um, and the same goes for the dynamics of uh, mechanical systems. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, uh, you know, uh, a lot of physics departments uh, have, if you ask me, really pushed themselves uh, or like painted themselves into a corner, into like extreme corners uh, of uh, research space. We're either studying the absolute tiniest things we can access uh, or we're studying the absolute largest things we can access. Um, uh, but uh, there's this prevailing thinking in physics a lot oftentimes that like 
the things on the meters length scales uh, that we have everyday experience with is a solved problem from the you know 19th and 20th centuries, uh, and there's no need to research that in the 21st century. Um, but uh, in addition to the infinitesimally, uh, you know, unimaginably tiny and the unfathomably uh, infinitely large, uh, there's also this, if you ask me, this like uh, uh, infinitely complex uh, natural phenomenon occurring at our own length scales. Yeah. And there's so many frontiers to our knowledge uh, within our own selves um, that physics is still so limited by, our current physics is still so limited in being able to describe. Uh, so I think any physicist that wants to approach life uh, with as many physical tools as possible is going to have to arm themselves with uh, as many, you know, uh, concepts in physics as possible. And absolutely, that includes nonlinear dynamics. Um, uh, in the talk that I gave, I showed a movie of uh, Lionel Messi scoring a goal. Mm. How are you going to describe the stability uh, and the agility and, uh, you know, um, the mechanics of this living system? being able to control this little tiny inert ball and scoring it where it's supposed to go without any sort of nonlinear dynamics. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then uh, it's not just, um, and it's not just, you know, soccer players, you know, all over life, uh, they're, uh, we're, uh, living systems are uh, constantly uh, active and moving uh, in ways that uh, oftentimes you just can't get away with in a regular classical mechanics lecture. Um, and so, uh, so absolutely, I think uh, nonlinear dynamics is uh, going to make a, a serious return in the context of uh, biological physics, for sure. Mm. Thanks for hanging out with us today in the Room of Lives. In the next part of our conversation, we talk about the spirit of humility, openness, and compassion in academics. How does Jose say, I don't know? so often and so easily. We then discuss systemic power imbalance and exploitation by advisors in grad school. Is there room in today's outcome-oriented academia for generosity and openness? Mm -hmm.